the National Archives podcast series. This talk is from our Big Ideas series and is called Surfacing the Page. It was presented by Professor Marianne Diva, Dr Jacqueline Lorber-Kusnick and Professor Kate Sweetapple. It was recorded on the 22nd of November 2017 at the National Archives, Q. Um, thank you very much for the invitation to come here and speak today. It's extremely exciting for us all. One of the, I think, reasons for that excitement is that the project that we're going to be talking to you about is a very new one. So you're one of our first audiences to hear about it. It's also a project that we, we don't call work in progress. We actually talk about it as a project that is unfolding. Because as I was explaining to... Um, Anna and Irene over lunch, this is a different kind of project um, from the ones that we often enter into these days. It's a project that has been built around quite speculative conversations, and in particular conversations not just among ourselves as a research team, but with archivists working in the State Library of New South Wales. So it's something that started off with, I guess, um, a particular kind of theoretical and conceptual framework we were interested in exploring and engaging with archivists about what kinds of materials might be best suited to pursuing those kinds of questions. So we'll talk more about it, and I think it will become clearer as we go along, how this discussion has allowed us to develop something that's quite interesting and speculative. We didn't necessarily have a clear end in mind, and I think we're at a stage now where we can see some of the potential for what we're doing, but it's still very much an open conversation. So for that reason we're really kind of excited to put the work out there now and you know, have some feedback on what you think its potential might be. So my background is um, as a literary scholar, but in more recent years I've been focusing very much on literary archives, manuscript collections, and in particular questions to do with materiality. And that's where our conversation first began when we realised that we had some shared interests in materiality. Um, Jackie and Kate um, come from a different background. They come from the field of visual communication design, so they're bringing something very different to the conversation. So the three presentations we have today are interlocking ones, and they take up the theme of surfacing the page. And we talk of surfacing here not in a literal sense um, of the flat surfaces of the page, though we will be talking about those, but in the sense in which this terminology of surfacing is currently used by those interested in rethinking the nature of the empirical, something which I think lies at the heart of really all of our inquiry or research. This issue takes some particular relevance, I think, at a point when digital technologies and the resulting expansion of cultural data have changed forever what we might think of as our tools and methods for producing new knowledge in archival fields. And I know from talking to Anna that this is something that's very much at the forefront of your thinking here as well. In this sense, surfacing the page refers to the page as a productively redefined space of inquiry, where, in the words of Adkins and Lurie, the space of the surface can open up possibilities for the development of differently coordinated, multidimensional, multi-situated, processual and open-endedly engaged knowledge claims. This way of thinking supports inquiries into the digital if we follow Dahlstrom, Hansen and Chelman, 
who argue that digitisation is neither neutral nor merely mechanical, but a knowledge organisation practice that shapes and reshapes our cultural heritage. Well, in the work that we're talking about today, we're pursuing a critical digitisation project. That is one which operates at a vastly different scale and with different ends to the more common mass digitisation projects with which we're all familiar. Critical digitisation works at the level of individual documents and normally has to develop project-specific practices and tools, tailoring them to the qualities of the documents in the particular collection. In our case, we're working with a set of manuscripts from an autobiographical memoir published in 1988 by Ruby Langford Guinnaby, an Australian Indigenous writer. As we'll elaborate across the presentations this afternoon, our inquiry revolves around a series of questions. Does the paper page matter in archive-based research? How might a focus on materiality, and in particular graphic materiality, shift how we approach manuscripts, and especially what we might understand to constitute archival evidence? So we're very much interested in opening up, opening up that question and opening out what we understand evidence to be in an archival setting. What are the implications for digitisation if we consider that the manuscript page is open and dynamic rather than fixed and inert? Can we imagine a new digital environment sensitive to the emergent capacities of the page? And what would that be like? So those are the kinds of questions that we started with. Before we go any further, it's really important, I think, that we acknowledge the very great assistance that we've had since the beginning of this project from two of the archivists at the State Library of New South Wales, Rachel Franks on the left and Kirsten Thorpe. When we first came to the library um, in a very speculative fashion to engage them in a conversation along these lines, um, we started off, I think, with some quite um, abstract theoretical ideas and we were endeavouring to, I guess, to explain our interests and preoccupations to some of the archivists there. But it was really only with Rachel's help that we were able to identify materials that might allow us to ground those inquiries. So on a number of occasions, we would come into the, the library behind the scenes, and Rachel will have actually brought up from various of the literary collections manuscripts that she thought had interesting features that might you know, um, somehow meet, I guess, the kinds of ideas that we were interested in exploring. So we're very much indebted to Rachel. It was Rachel who identified the Ruby Langford Guinnaby manuscripts for us as a suitable set of papers, perhaps for us to begin looking at in some detail. As we mentioned, Ruby Langford Guinnaby is an Australian Indigenous author and Kirsten Thorpe is um, in charge of Indigenous services um, in the State Library. So we've been working with her to ensure that the ways in which we engage with these manuscripts are appropriate, but she's also facilitated communication between us um, and the Langford Guinnaby family so that they're aware of the kind of work that we're doing. But certainly... Um, the work that we're showing you and talking to you about today has very much been um, developed in um, conversation with the staff, um, with Rachel and Kirsten and their colleagues. Well, if we think about where this conversation begins, I think for me um, it begins around the idea that despite ideas to the contrary, 
the proliferation of digital archival environments has not cancelled out or superseded traditional archival formats. Instead, the rise of the digital has generated important and novel questions about analogue materials. Media archaeologist Wolfgang Ernst characterises this as the archival retro effect. The more cultural data are processed in electronic fugitive form, he argues, the more the traditional archive gains authority from the very materiality of its artefacts, parchment, paper, tapes. This is perhaps what Catherine Hales identifies as the something gained in an area of discussion initially characterised by quite anxious discourses of loss, particularly the loss of materiality. Arguably, I think this um, interest in the material is not surprising, given that, as I've sort of um, focused on quite a bit in recent research, the promise of paper is something that traditionally has attracted so many of us to the archives, holding on to those, those documents, the tactile in, encounters. As Rimmer et al. have observed, regardless of the availability of high-quality digital surrogates, the original physical object is still regarded as the gold standard for many for study. Yet I'd suggest that our interactions with these documents have conventionally lacked close attention to questions of materiality. In history and literary studies, this is the legacy of the so-called linguistic turn, um, a turn that occurred in those disciplines in the, the 1980s and 1990s, and which generated an insistent focus on exclusively textual evidence, or the words on the page. This way of operating, I think, encouraged us to separate meaning from materiality and to invest in the idea of archived papers and pages as seemingly neutral containers or platforms for the transmission of words from which meaning can later be extracted. And obviously, you know, this is linked up very much to methodological approaches that saw us spending hours and hours in institutions such as this transcribing documents because it was the words, the text, that we were interested in. Indeed, critic Hans Ulrich Gumbrecht points to the manner in which the absolute dominance of meaning-related questions across the humanities has long led to the abandonment of all other types of phenomena and questions, so it closed down other kinds of inquiry. Gumbrecht suggests that it's precisely our understanding of the materialities of communication which has suffered as a consequence of this dominance, and he speculates on whether the emergence of the digital communication technologies may turn out to be instrumental in reawakening a desire for presence, something that he defines in terms of the impact of the tangible. Well, this is not to suggest that new digitisation technologies have simply heightened our sense of or attachment to the aura of the original. I think that's an inadequate take on the productivity of those particular technologies. Indeed, the impact, I think, is best captured in Derrida's observation that by carrying us beyond paper, the adventures of technology grant us a sort of future anterior. They liberate our readings for a retrospective exploration of the past resources of paper. That is to say, these technologies, enforcing researchers to reflect on what it means to work with original documents, may also highlight the assumptions and blind spots that have structured our existing understandings of the relationship between matter and meaning and about the difference that a specific medium can make. Indeed, I'd go so far as to suggest 
that what the digital shift has revealed is in fact the relative poverty of a lot of our approaches to these kinds of concerns. It shows us perhaps what we previously had not seen for looking. For example, we, we find that fields such as medieval and early modern manuscript studies might claim to have paid more attention to questions of textual materiality, but this work with its focus on cataloguing the minute details of a manuscript's physical features has often remained at the level of what Joanna Drucker calls descriptive literalism. In some, the focus has been upon what the page is, its properties, and not what a page can do, its capacities. There are exceptions, however. More recently, scholars such as Bonnie Mack, in her 2011 study, How the Page Matters, have done much to remind us that the page is an expressive space for text, space and image. It's a cultural artefact, it's a technological device. And one of the things, if you're not familiar with um, Mack's work, she takes a particular text and looks at it through the different um, iterations and, and analyses what difference medium actually makes in relation to how we engage with a text. Mack works from the premise that meaning and materiality are inseparable, arguing that we must attend to the matter and the mattering of the individual page. In the field of modern manuscript studies, there have in fact been some really um, insightful examples of work, though, around the materiality of the manuscript page. And I think some of the most exciting of those have come from scholars who've been working with the different manuscript states of 19th century American poet Emily Dickinson, and some of you may already be familiar with some of this work. Probably one of the most exciting critics working in that area is Marta Werner. And she's highlighted in particular the manner in which the disorderly material body of poems, letters and fragments that survived Dickinson necessarily demand a qualitatively different form of engagement with the manuscript page. And this is not least because Dickinson, a poet whose work scarcely made it into print in her lifetime, the draft for her was not a point of departure for her poetry, but instead its final destination. And there have been some, um, there's some really beautiful work done in recent years on what's referred to as Dickinson's envelope poems, which are poems written on different opened-out um, pieces of you know, envelope, and they're really quite striking. Well, as Werner highlights, particularly in her work on the envelope poems, Dickinson's manuscript poems are textually unruly, and her later efforts in particular can be transcribed in the immovable medium of print only imperfectly. What Dickinson's draft poems make clear is that neither paper nor the page can be understood as a mere material support to text in any familiar or straightforward way. What the paper is doing there and its relationship to the text I think is far more complex than simply a piece of paper on which to write. This work on Dickinson, however, I think, only foregrounds the general tendency for the page to remain an all but invisible counterpart to most of our archival engagements. Well, the particular page that concerns us in this project is the draft manuscript page. But before elaborating in more detail on the precise nature of our inquiries, it's worth clarifying what we mean by a draft page. Manuscript pages generally, as you almost certainly know, generally take two forms, namely the draft and the fair copy. And the latter is recognisable by its clean look and the general lack of corrections, insertions and amendments. It represents a final or definitive pre-publication state of a work. 
This is in contrast to the draft manuscript page, which displays the marks of ongoing work. It's a document in process, and to quote Marna Werner, it's distinguished from the fair copy by a surface aggressed and illuminated by the trial of writing. That is, a surface at once indexical and iconic. Well, the draft manuscript pages that we're working on are taken from Don't Take Your Love to Town, an autobiographical text published by Ruby Langford Guinnaby in 1988. It's a well-known and widely acclaimed example of Australian Indigenous life writing. The manuscripts were acquired by the State Library of New South Wales directly from, the Langford, um, directly from Langford Guinnaby during her lifetime. There are at least six separate draft manuscripts reflecting different stages in the development of the work, and they carry such fabulous labels as Ruby's Messy Drafts, Ruby's Drafts and Extracts. And in fact, it, it, I think it was the Ruby's Messy Drafts that had stuck in Rachel Frank's mind. So when she was thinking about our discussions around materiality and paper and the page, this is, I think, one of the reasons why she thought we might like to look at these particular works. We've laid out the different um, stages and, um, of the manuscripts there, and I particularly like you to sort of remember the pink folder that you see there on the right towards the back, because um, that's going to feature um, shortly. What first drew our attention, and I would suggest also Rachel's, to these manuscripts was their insistent materiality. Looking at the layering of post-it notes ruffling the edges of the pages, and the strips of inserted text held together by pins, it's impossible to handle these drafts and not begin thinking through paper. Our initial questions were, well, what work is paper doing here? What are the affordances of paper offering to the work of drafting and editing and to our ongoing engagements with these manuscripts? And finally, could specific digital tools or treatments enhance our capacity to understand and appreciate that work? Could such tools effectively surface the page in new ways? From these questions, I think it should be apparent that in our work we define materiality not as a fixed or inherent quality of the page, but as something that manifests itself in our interactions with the page. A materiality, therefore, that cannot be specified in advance, as if it pre-existed the specificity of the work, to quote Catherine Hales. Our focus in examining these draft manuscripts is upon the material traces of a process, a process of creation. We're interested in looking at movement or what might be termed a chain of writing events. However, this is not with the intention of tracing the evolving textual states that precede the finished work. As we've already highlighted, we're concerned primarily with graphic materiality and non-textual elements of the page. So we're not interested in, in really following the evolving text towards its final state. In this regard, our approach departs from traditional textual criticism, which is interested in that process, and is aligned much more with a school of thought known as genetic criticism, the goal of which lies not in the production of a definitive text for the work, but with the study of the dynamics of the writing process itself, a process understood as a process of becoming. The variant states um, are thus of interest in themselves and can be considered non-teleologically, that is, without regard to the final work. 
What makes these manuscripts even more compelling and something that we discovered partway through the process of working on them is the knowledge that Langford Guinevere mounted a legal challenge against the non-Indigenous editor who worked on the book with her and who initially enjoyed the legal status of co-producer with an equal claim on both copyright and royalties. It's quite an extraordinary case, particularly if you recall that this work was published in 1988, which was the... Um, Australian bicentennial year, so it was the 200 years um, since white settlement or white invasion. So it was a, an intensely political moment in terms of relations between um, Indigenous Australians and white Australians. So for this work to have appeared with um, the non-Indigenous editor sharing you know, um, in the copyright as co-producer was quite extraordinary. Well, as part of the legal challenge that Langford Guinneby um, mounted, a formal analysis of different manuscript states of the work was produced. And um, this was in fact part of the case she was putting together in her efforts to assert her claims to sole authorship and to regain full copyright. And we can talk a little bit more about that case um, at the end. Well, the Langford Guinnaby drafts, I think, are especially interesting in this respect as the drafting process was a materially complex one, as um, characterised, as I've already noted, by cutting and pasting and pinning of strips of paper, often producing mechanical extensions to the conventional boundaries of the page. So very much, I think, even looking at it raises questions about what is a page and how does a page work. Indeed, as original documents, these, drafts, these are drafts which, in the words of Hans-Walter Gabler, possess features which no addition one might imagine could exhaust, since they are, in truth, unamenable to editing. I'm obviously at the end there. Further, as cut-ups feature so strongly among these drafts, it's likely that particular manuscript states cannot now be reconstituted as they've been incorporated, at least in part, into successive ones. So certain states of um, draft manuscripts have actually been cut up and put into a successive state. So we can't actually fully reconstitute that process even if we wanted to. In effect, this means we're concerned with the material traces of a creative process where in order to form itself, something transformed itself. So I think our project demonstrates how the affordances of the digital extend what genetic criticism imagined it could do and bringing to the fore a process which is always virtually present in the background. So now I will hand over. Okay. So what we do in this next kind of um, part is uh, focus on the kind of graphic materiality of the page. So the page, whether it is um, a physical paper object, a digitised copy or a born digital artefact, is an enduring and persistent form with, with which to transmit ideas. While earlier forms of writing technologies such as scrolls and tablets existed, by the early Middle Ages, pages bound within a book became the preferred method of communication. Over the centuries, as printed books replaced manuscripts, the page became ubiquitous, both as a part of and as separate to a codex. The event of digital devices has done nothing to lessen its ubiquity. However, in spite of, or in fact, because of its pervasiveness, the page has become transparent. It has all but disappeared from view. We use the ocular term or centric term view deliberately as irrespective of the material instantiation 
of the written word, text is predominantly analysed as if it were not visually embodied, as if it were somehow read but not seen. As Kendall, Portella and White write, and this is a quote, it is a peculiarity of liter literary and textual studies that the vast majority of critical thought is devoted to engaging with the meaning of a text as if it was not delivered by visual means. And because the page is so habituated, so con conventionalised, the graphic qualities, the layout, the typeface, the white space, the column widths and so on of the page are dismissed as a series of inevitable, inconsequential decisions rather than as a series of rhetorical moves drawn from the socio-cultural practices of reading and writing and designed to cognitively frame the text. So what we sort of wanted to do today is demonstrate that these under-acknowledged or often forgotten material qualities of the page, the graphic features of a text, are an integral part of how a text is interpreted. And we sort of play with this concept in the, in the next third. Before we go any further, it is important to qualify what we mean by material or kind of graphical qualities. While pa paper matters, it is not the matter of paper. Its size, shape or quality, whether it be thick or thin, smooth, rough or brittle, whether it be printed on vellum or parchment, mass produced on cheap stock or printed with ink of the highest quality, that is critical to how we frame the materiality of the page. Paper does not have a meaning in and of itself. It has a set of associations and relative values, which constitute a complex range of dependencies, contingencies and circumstances that are interdependent. In the context of this research, what matters about paper is its role in the production of the page as a socially, culturally and technologically constructed object. When reading a page, we do more than attend to the written language. We register the typeface, the size, the number of columns, width of margins, absence or presence of headers, footers or titles, and often not consciously and nor as single entities, but rather as interdependent actors that shape the page and in turn shape our understanding of the textual artefact. On one level, these graphic entities play a part in denoting the genre of the artefact. They visually signal whether the page is from a novel, a manuscript or a newspaper, for example. On another level, these graphic entities operate as a series of content directives and navigational devices, a subheading signalling a new section, an indent for a new paragraph, italics for emphasis and indices and page numbers to orientate readers. These graphic qualities frame a text both physically and cognitively, from the level of a genre to page to sentence. They prompt and enable textual interpreta interpretation in the first instance without the need for linguistic engagement. For example, without reading the text in figure one and figure two, we identify these pages as being from a dictionary on the left and a telephone book, um, for those of you who remember what telephone books look like, on the right. The page's graphic codes are driving this interpretation. It is the number of columns and their widths, the text indentations, the choice of font, size and weight, and the resulting spatial relations they create that prompt us to interpret these pages as being from a dictionary 
or a telephone book. It is not the lexical units nor their syntactical arrangements from which our first reading is made. We visually, not verbally, interpret this page. Thus critical to our argument is an understanding of these graphic codes, not only as shapers of content, but as content in and of themselves, as non-linguistic signs, which is something that Marianne raised with semantic agency. And for those of you who remain unconvinced about the capacity of graphic qualities to set the parameters of our engagement with ideas, let's take a closer look at these images. The text of the dictionary is in fact a script from the telev television series, The Simpsons. And kind of have a look here, um, in figure one. And equally, the text of the phone book is a short one-act play by Tom Stoppard, the real Inspector Hound. Both are typeset to create a contradiction between the form and content. This exercise in mimicking visual conventions is an example of how graphical features construct the interpretive possibilities and therefore carry semantic value. Thus, the meaning of textual objects, or how we read them, are not singularly produced by linguistic materials. Rather, they are produced by what Mays and Thorburn describe as a product of kind of many materialities, including graphical elements, which are the epistemological uh, sort of domain, um, we argue, of visual communication designers. It is this understanding of the graphic qualities of the page that have been largely absent from um, literary studies and where we kind of hope um, as, as design-led researchers to make a, a contribution. However, this limited understanding of gra graphic materia materiality is slowly changing. The rapid increase in the digitisation of archival collections and the central role the visual plays in the mediation of text as image is bringing with it a new awareness of the page's graphical elements. This is especially the case within the context of digital scholarship, where the value of materiality is becoming increasingly apparent because it enables us to ask new questions of these textual objects. So to digitise something is to move beyond representation and create a new object that exists separate to the original object. This object is not merely a surrogate, although questions about the legitimacy of surrogates as meaningful copies in library and archival studies have been lively, and I'm sure that that's something that you're very kind of immersed in currently. But a new object with its own distinct features that affects the way a text is perceived. Its distinctiveness is born out of a material difference between print and digital media and the way in which a digital object can be manipulated, altered and rearranged, pixel by pixel, in creative and potentially revelatory ways. As Michael J. Kramer writes, the promise of digitisation is the convergence of artefacts into pliable, ductile, mutable forms. This understanding of a digitised textual artefact as generative and emergent makes them a rich site for humanistic exploration. As Martin Muller explains, and this again is a quote, every surrogate has its own query potential, which for some purposes may exceed that of the original. So while, is, while, while it is generally understood that a digital representation of a textual object is in fact a new non-identical object, with its own ontological identity capable of moving 
beyond conventional understandings of representation as a copy, how this new medium with its new distinct material affordances, that is, its malleability, may affect the way we apprehend a text is only just emerging. And this is the kind of idea that we're playing with in, in our Guinea project. It is this opportunity that we, as design-led researchers, are exploring through the surfacing of graphic materiality and its distinctive approach to the production of knowledge. More specifically, we are interested in how this understanding of materiality provides insight into the dynamics of the writing process. As stated by Marianne, we take our lead from genetic criticism, which is not concerned with texts at all, but only with the writing processes that engender them. Through its deep awareness of the text's ascetic dimension, genetic criticism pursues an immaterial object, a process through the concrete analysis of the material traces left behind by that process. To disclose the process of writing, we account for the wealth of non-textual information in manuscripts, as Kate will show you, that is, for all the graphic marks on the page. As we demonstrate through the Ruby Langford Guinaby case study, this attention to the graphical marks of a manuscript can provide alternate approaches to traditional methods of textual criticism. Onto the work, and if you remember the pink folder that Marianne was referring to. In this slide, we have the first three pages of that pink folder. It's actually the first three pages of a 22-page draft of Chapter 1, and it displays a range of activities, some of which include Guinaby and her editor drafting, revising, and editing the text. And I should say, we think this, this sort of draft folder is about the third draft, um, but we can't be entirely sure. So in order to understand the range of graphic activities, we take each page, identify common graphic marks, of which there are about 20 types, and group them into separate layers so that they are isolated from the rest of the text. For example, here we have types of deletion. When we were going through here, we thought it'd be quite simple just to sort of group these very quickly, but we realised they were they emerged very quickly, sort of four different ways in which deletion was occurring. Sometimes it was crossed out, other times um, in, entire brackets were struck through, I mean, paragraphs were struck out, and then also parts of the text were bracketed, which was a way to signal to remove the text. We also noticed that there were four types of notes or I should sort of say four different media. We have a pink pen, a black pen, a blue pen, and a pencil. It wasn't entirely clear at which times who was, which was the editor and when it was Ruby. Ways in which the text was grouped. We weren't always clear about what it was grouped to do, whether it was to be moved to other parts or um, emphasised in some ways, but again, the types of grouping, square brackets, curly brackets, circled bits of text. And then types of copy editing. Simple corrections, evidence of sort of repetition, words circled to say, you know, maybe the use of the log is, is um, too, you know, often in this part. Underlining the text, and then, you know, the NP for new paragraphs. 
And again, we went through very uh, systematic, but in a very descriptive way. What are these marks? How are they different? Not thinking too much about where that might lead us. Other types of symbols that appeared, asterisks, asterisks I should say, arrows, numbers, and even musical notes. Okay, and here are all the 22 pages that make up that first chapter of this draft. And each page here contains only the editorial activities. Any unedited text has been removed. And this enables us to see the graphic activity on the page, demonstrating both the kinds of activities and the levels of activities. And here are the back pages. What we did, then did is we decided to group those 20 different kinds of marks into five types of activities. It was just too difficult to wrangle all 20 at all the time. So, for example, copy edits, they ended up being the new paragraphs marks uh, when there were spelling corrections, when speech marks were added. And so these, although they appeared on separate layers, as we showed before, we, we ended up sort of flattening into a single layer. Additions, both through the arrows and just through the written text. Deletions, again, these were separated out, but where we put where sort of sentences were struck out and entire paragraphs. And what we refer to as sort of structural changes. So moving to other parts of the page, the chapter, the manuscript. And commentary, which was a different kind of uh, notes on the side. They weren't additions to the narrative, but they were seem to be what we think is the editor saying things like, not sure, too intrusive, and cuts into the drama of the story. Or sometimes Ruby saying, should ex could expand this into a bigger scene. So stuff that lies outside of the narrative. And here you can see, I assume it's... I hope that it's obvious that we've just removed everything that isn't what we assume to be commentary. And as we were going through the process of categorising the types of editorial activities, we began to see patterns emerge. Copy edits were consistent, whereas commentary from the editor appeared over the first five pages and then became less frequent. And this slide, if you can just see that very pale green shows the five categories of editorial activity in Chapter 1 and on which page they occur. This kind of analysis would possibly be more interesting at scale as a point of comparison across all six drafts. I mean, we're only dealing with one draft of the first chapter. We thought, um, while you can see that copy edits were very consistent and that commentary appeared only at the beginning, what would be quite interesting to see how these editorial um, languages changed from draft to draft as the process of refining the manuscript occurred. We also noted that when we were looking at the text in this first draft, that it ended up appearing right across the, the entire published novel. So even though the, the first chapter, sorry, of the draft we were looking at only ends up, the first chapter only ends up being 11 pages, in the final published novel, those first few pages end up as far as page 241 in the final novel. So you see sort of huge sort of dispersal 
of what was originally sitting in those first 22 pages. And not only was the whole chapter dispersed, even you know, a single page ended up over five different pages that were not actually even consecutive. So that's sort of 39, 40, 41, and then we have it at 51, and these are all just sort of different sentences. Okay, in the next set of experiments, we combine common editorial activities across the chapter onto a single page. Okay, so what we have here is all of the textual editions of that first draft of chapter, oh, sorry, the draft we're looking at of that first chapter left as they were found on the page in the same spot and then flattened together, merged. And then once we'd done this, sort of had this sort of spatial understanding, what we decided to do was reorder them, or as you say, place them in a kind of chronology, so as you read through. So at the top is the first textual edition that appears on the manuscript as we found it. We refer to this process as deformance, a process that focuses on altering, disrupting, or reorganising a text. In literary studies, deformance is an intervention into a text in order to bring attention to textual qualities eluded by conventional criticism. As Jerome McGann and Lisa Samuels, who introduced the term right, we are brought into a critical position in which we can imagine things about the text that we did not and perhaps could not otherwise know. Deformance can thus be used to defamiliarise a text, to enable a text to be seen anew, or in this instance, to surface the process of writing. Critically, defamiliarisation demands a slowing down of how we process a text and an increased awareness of the editorial manoeuvres in the production of a text. As Mark Sample writes, deformance revitalises a text, revealing its constructiveness, its seams, edges and working parts. So, for example, by placing the additions in order they appear, as they appear throughout the chapter, a new way to engage with the text is made possible. Through this decontextualisation, the, the additions can be read on their own terms, offering a potential world rather than an actual one. And so we took this idea, or this method, and applied it across the marks. So here we have all the deletions on the front page of chapter one of this possibly third manuscript. The back page deletions. And then all of them uh, reordered or sort of made horizontal, really. So in this slide, which is a combination of the front and back pages, we begin to read what has been removed from the narrative, a type of anti-text, what Guinnaby and the editor have selected to leave out. What is revealed here, ironically through striking out the text, is a critical aspect of the writing process, that is deletion. As Justin Berry writes, when we erase, we are not just taking something away, we are also revealing the conditions of production. Here are all the arrows we found on the first 22 pages. What is interesting about this page, about this new page, is the way it disrupts our understanding of the page as a bounded space, 
The arrows are moving text at the level of a single word and sentence, as well as moving text from one page to another. Here we are again reminded of the role of genetic criticism, where, like old-fashioned philology or textual criticism, it examines tangible documents such as writers' notes, drafts and proof corrections, but its real object is something much more abstract. Not the existing documents, but the movement of writing that must be inferred from them. It never posits an ideal text beyond this document, but rather strives to reconstruct from all available evidence the chain of events in the writing process. And that was a quote. The black pen. Again, reordered. One of the critical changes in this piece of deformance is that it places the text horizontally so that the frenetic angled additions turn into a prose. The additions can be read in an ordered way, potentially changing the way in which a reader perceives them. By placing the additions together, we are inferring a single author, which is not actually necessarily true. This deformance strategy emphasises the role of graphic materiality and its capacity to change how a text is interpreted, both who actually wrote the text, but also how we understand these, uh, this bit of text to appear. At the moment we have put it, it looks like it was written in a continuous way, um, as you would, you know, a bit of prose, but in actual fact it was a whole lot of um, tiny snippets and inserts and additions of the entire chapter strung together. Here the underlined text, there was not a lot of it in um, this work. But what is interesting about this is by isolating all of the underlined text, we place emphasis on particular phrases which are then juxtaposed to each other. This process of juxtaposition creates a set of micro-narratives which are in part a function of the white space. Critically, this white space is not a neutral or an earth space. It is not blank nor representative of absence, but rather a profoundly productive and generative space that brings these pieces of text into new relations. And this process can be likened to a form of sort of topic modelling where the key thematics are revealed. When you look at what we have left here out of this 22-page draft, uh, you know, very sort of strong indications of what this entire novel is about. Ruby is both a partner, um, which could be evidenced by this to his for not believing, I'm not sure. She's also a mother, you know, we have wanted a football, and she's also an Australian Indigenous woman. And all of these um, sort of ways of identifying her are, are consistent through the novel and, and captured very simply in this piece. Next, we just have the pencil commentary. What is unusual about these pencil editions compared to some of the other editions is that they largely appear in the margins, recording the ongoing dialogue between Guinnaby and her editor. You can see how, except for that bit of pencil that was obviously on the back page, it actually frames um, the sort of, and, and points to a kind of ghosted uh, typescript type which is actually missing there. And then we have the fabulous back page where it's obviously uh, Ruby with her pink pen 
furiously writing in um, memories and ideas and parts of the narrative as they appear when she's reading through this this first um, typed up version of her manuscript. And it's sort of the uncanny consistency of the angle on the back page always strikes us when we see this image. And then lastly, I'm not quite sure what we do with these, but these sort of constellations of numbers here, which again give us the sense of how um, much structural change goes into this process of writing. Again, these funny blob objects and this rather fascinating bit of concrete typewriter art poetry at the end, which is just all the corrections made by the typist. So through these experiments, we demonstrate how the process of writing can be surfaced through the alteration of the graphical elements of the page, thereby asserting the often neglected role of graphic materiality as a form of critique. These methods of graphical deformance are not intended to be used in isolation or to replace existing tools of genetic criticism or, in fact, any other types of literary criticism. Nor are they exhaustive. There are actually many other graphic and spatial qualities to explore. Rather, they are designed to show how a digitised text can be productively manipulated to create alternate ways of surfing the, surfacing the writing process graphically. And that's it. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, all rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.